Diadith August Falch a quick path to power in a shock to Nisha is Misha Matt Cooper. And I'm Ivan Yates. On this week's podcast, does the public want the green agenda? Are failures to invest in water and electricity infrastructure? Trump and NATO and Ireland's relationship to NATO? The politics of house prices? Paul Kyo's retirement from the Doyle? Sinn Féin and the TV licence? Ireland's position on Israel? August Niestiani? Love Romid Féin the Guelga avaid on Usador as the sale letrul? Ernaka in a late August Efoktuk on Togusk Nasna Skolena? Which, in other words, means later we're going to talk about the Irish language, right. the extent to which it is used in our daily lives, our attitudes towards it, and the effectiveness of teaching it. And in I must apologise to regular listeners who require subtitles and none are provided <laughs> on this podcast. You see, that's the facetiousness which has gotten you into trouble <laughs> no, in relation no, to your attitude to the Irish language. We'll get back to that a little bit later, all right? I want to start, though. Last week, we got a tremendous reaction to the insight that you provided in relation to the life of the late John Bruton. And uh, you went to the funeral on Saturday morning. I, and I think by common consent, I think people felt it was an exceptionally dignified and appropriate tribute for a statesman. Yes. Uh, I'm so long going to country funerals, I know how to do it. Left really early in Enscorthy because I saw it was two miles from the cemetery up a country road to Dunboyne town. So I parked at the cemetery, walked back, saw all the cameras, civil defence said, Ivan, do you want to lift? So arrived back in great time in Dunboyne, around half nine. And who was there? Only Nora Owen holding forth in the only toilet in Dunboyne, which is in the Spar coffee shop. So there was a gathering of all the, the Fine Gael family. So I have to say, in the church, so Tom Bruton would be the first cousin uh, of, 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 of John's and they were close. And he ushered everyone on the left and on the right of the church. It was a lovely big church. All this Oroctus, uh, EU and, and other party leaders. And the ushers did a fantastic job. Good to see Michelle O'Neill and Emma Pengali Peng- was, was there. They didn't have to go. So then the, the. I'm sorry, can I just say that Mary Lou MacDonald was there Absolutely. as well, in fairness. And I did think, I'm sorry to stop you in You're your flow of right? but I thought it was, I think Michelle O'Neill has an incredibly good emotional intelligence in relation to where it's appropriate to be and turning up for things like funerals and events. I mentioned it last week yeah. in relation to the British monarchy, but for Emma Little Pengali to come along as well and for the two of them to sit together, I think was a remarkably strong signal. Yeah. And, and I think it, the Chuckle Brothers, as they were called, Mark McGuinness and Ian have been replaced by the Smiling Sisters. So and I thought that was a nice touch. So the, the mass was an hour and a quarter long. The family were in the porch and the sympathising took about an hour and a half. And he was on the gun carriage before it took off. So you can imagine outside the amount of politicking that was going on was the extraordinary. Gossip. So I, I, I just want to say a few, a few things. One, I, I'm now absolutely convinced from both my Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil sources that the timing of the next election will be either the last Thursday or Friday in October, the first Thursday or Friday in November, with the prospect of a September budget for 2025. The reason why this is no longer, uh, uh, you know, the thought of an early election and, you know, allowing Sinn Féin to build up a head of steam with candidates, that actually Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil need new shiny councillors elected. They have candidate problems of their own. And so so that, that's the first thing. And that leads us on to Paul Kyo, if I may, if I may go there with that. I wanted yes. to go to Paul Kyo. Yes, your protégé. Yes. 
So when I announced I was quitting politics in 2001, Paul emerged as the, the successor and he exceeded expectations. He, he got, uh, you know, chief whip, super junior minister in the cabinet uh, and 22 year service. Now, the redraw of the constituencies, I think nationwide was fine except they made a dog's dinner of, they, they, they took Wexford County, which is an administrative unit and has been successful, a five-seater, cut it in half. So there's three TDs in Enniscorthy, James Brown, the junior minister for Fianna Fáil, John Mythen of Sinn Féin, and Paul Keogh. And it simply cut their vote in half. You know, but north into Gorey, south into Wexford and New Ross. So you'd have all those areas like Clonroach and Bonclody, where the Enniscorthy candidate had first dibs on all of these. The redraw forced him to look at Wicklow-Wexford, which goes up to Ratdrum. Real difficulty in getting elected there. His base cut in half. And at 51 years of age, I think he's done 22 years, which means you can't get... This, you get the same pension if you do 20 years or 40 years in the doll. So, uh, Sorry, when does he qualify to get the pension? Right? Have to no, wait? No, 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 in the normal terms and conditions, but the maximum point is 50%. Okay. And, and that, 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 that's reached. But that makes it number nine of retirements for Fine and, so, and just the impact of that in a second. But does that suggest, did the Boundary Commission get it a little bit wrong? Should they have gone for counties like that for six-seater? constituencies rather than splitting them into two threes and then spilling out Can they do six-seaters? Well, I'm sure you can no, I, no, bring I, I, in legislation yeah, but, but to like really offer I, that. I, I thought there was a minimum of three and a maximum of five, but I don't know. But either way, it, it, it's created a complete... It'll neither suit Wicklow nor Wexford. But it's sorry, a dog's dinner. The point is with the population growing so much and because we have this one to 30,000 that is required yeah. and you're getting an increase, there may be a need to look at redrawing the, the not just the boundaries and the constituencies each time, but looking at the structure in which the numbers required per person and also looking at whether we actually have bigger constituencies to take natural country boundaries into greater consideration. But where I want to go with this is the goss. Go on, so go the goss outside the funeral was that two more TDs have told Leo they're not standing if any Gale TDs in the next election. So I don't know who they are, but I'm trying to work out who it is. So... First of all, first candidate is Bernard Durkin in North Kildare. He's 78 years of age. He was elected to the Dáil in 1981, same time as me. He, he, like, it is incredible that he wouldn't be retiring. And each time I predict he wants me to predict, he's going to lose his seat. And then he, <laughs> he gets every last vote out. And if I said he was safe, he'd be in trouble. And then you look at Ringer. Michael Ring at 70. You know what I mean? You have to ask the question there, you know, whether he's going to falter in his opinion on that. Colin he's Burke, quieter than he used to be as well. Isn't oh, he? yes, absolutely. But I'm sure he's voracious in Westport and those areas. Uh, Colin Burke at 67. So I'm, I'm, there is a case of who else might be on that list because, and can I tell you this, a few people... Sorry, Colin Burke spent so long trying to get in. I that's suspect right. he okay. will try and go Except in that. again. And yeah. you, you would know about the court. And I have to say, and I, so Simon Harris is the Director of Elections for the General Election for Fine Gael. Simon Coveney is Director of Elections for the Euro Elections. And I'm hearing persistent rumours, absolutely totally denied by Simon Coveney that he may not stand in the next election. I'm just hearing it from sources. I don't know what you're hearing in Cork. So I'm not saying he isn't standing, but I'm saying that there is a persistent rumour from people I respect. Well, could it be that if they, they're looking at it, the only point of actually standing is in the belief that they will be in a government again. But if they're not confident about being in government, why would they, as you told us on a previous edition of this, want to spend up to a decade on the opposition benches, particularly that they're even older than you were when you mm. decided to get out of politics. 
So maybe it is, you know, the problem for Fine Gael is that if heavyweights like Simon Coveney or Pascal Dunhu or others decide not to run, then it's like a signal of defeat for the party and it'll affect every other candidate as if they've given up. Yeah, and it's but if they be do very hard run, to hold these if seats. They, and if they do run and then they find themselves in opposition, they're going to find, well, what the hell are we doing here? What do we do this for? And as you've pointed out as well, uh, under the terms of the Fine Gael constitution, you actually have to have a leadership vote of confidence. Automatic, if you don't go into government. If you don't go into government. So that would mean almost certainly there would be a new leader to replace Leo Varadkar. And that new leader, be it Simon Harris or Jennifer Carl McNeil or whoever it would be, would almost certainly probably ditch the old guard and go build up the party again with new Yeah, uh, but And even look, if you look at Sean Hoy stepping aside, I think... You know the whole kind of social media and kind of virulent abuse of politicians? I think that's taking a toll on, on politicians' families. And they kind of say there's more to life than this. What about virulent abuse of RT executives and board members? What did you make of this latest hearing well, the Eructus Media Committee? I remember when we did our first podcast back in December. I said, I expect the electioneering to start around February. And what do we got? The Dutch auction opened this week. Opening bid, 240 million from Sinn Féin out of the blue. We're going to abolish the TV licence and it's all going to be paid for by this magic money tree. And there's going to be an amnesty and we're going to give them plus 12.5 million uh, because they're not going to be collecting the licence anymore. This is just the start. An opening bid of what is going to be buying your votes with your own money. But wasn't that very good politics by Sinn Féin in the sense that what they were suggesting was not some sort of mad idea they came up with themselves, but something that was in the future of Media Commission, that they were saying there are 50 recommendations in the Future of Media Commission. The government had accepted 49. The one it didn't accept was the state funding to replace the licence fee. So all Sinn Féin is doing is endorsing what the experts said should be done. And the other thing in relation to the amnesty, which has got mixed opinions, but in some respects, was it not almost inviting people to not pay their licence this year in the knowledge that then by voting for Sinn Féin to go into government, in October and November, they'll be 160 euro better off because they won't be chased down for the non-payment of their TV license. Is that not clever politics? Look, it's gimmick politics, it's populist politics, it's auction politics, and it may well give them a bounce in the polls. But what I'm saying is this. We simply cannot have a 2024 when each party comes up with whatever rock on the road is hit that they will come up with this magic thing, the exchequer will pay for it. And I was just looking, an interesting thing from Finance Minister. So we talk about corporation tax and could it be vulnerable with changes with Trump and so on, 24 billion. But if you actually look at income tax and USC, so 80%, 8 out of 10 of all workers are on 69.5 grand or less. A quarter of all income tax in USC is paid for by the top 1%. one And you know what? They'll be looking at their Portugal options with surcharges and solidarity taxes and so on. So what I'm saying I is this... I think the Portugal option has been closed off well, by the, the Portuguese residential government. option has been, but uh, free movement, as you, as you keep reminding me, in relation to people from Eastern Europe, uh, is, is a reality. And the, the fact of the matter is, our entire tax code, income tax USC and corporation tax, is not guaranteed into the future. Okay, what do you make of the strengthening position that the Irish government has taken in relation to Israel in Gaza? Uh, This week, the government joined with the Spanish in going to the European Commission in relation to a trade deal that the EU has with Israel and a breach of the human rights requirements of that deal. How 
it's popular. I what think, do you think of it? I think it's absolutely the right thing. I, and I'm actually quite taken by how you can now get accused of being anti-Semitic if you express horror at the way that Israel is behaving itself in Gaza. Uh, I would certainly believe in Israel's right to exist. I've read an awful lot about the Holocaust and about anti-Semitism, the history of it in the 20th century and before in Europe. I have an understanding that uh, of the the horrors that the Jewish people went through and an understanding of why the state of Israel was created after the Second World War. And certainly I can see why a two-state solution is so important. The behaviour of the Israeli government, no matter what the provocation was of the October 7th horrors by Hamas, which were horrors and it was terrorism and it was dreadful and you cannot uh, justify it, although a small number of Irish people do seem to tend to try and justify it or refuse to condemn it, do not in any way legitimise the horrors of the response from Israel. So I think the Irish government has been careful because it knows about the pro-Israeli sentiment of American multinationals and the American government and Europe. But I think it's our position has become stronger and stronger. At the same time as David Cameron has been strongly advocating the two-state solution, as Joe Biden is apparently calling Benjamin Netanyahu an asshole, mm-hmm. and also is pushing the two-state solution. So I think they're doing, yes, the right thing. Yeah, and but but does it matter what Ireland says? Well, you can say that. I mean, you can no, say I'm, that. I'm, I'm sorry, that isn't a justification for doing no. nothing. But like, does it really matter insofar as that? I mean, the Senate, and I know the Congress may not approve this, approved a rolled up package both for Ukraine and and Israel uh, of what is it, ninety five billion dollars. Yeah. Um, so uh, I mean, like, it's business. It's a bit thrown in and border security is, as well. Yeah. But 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 it, it does seem there's business as usual as regards America supporting it. I don't know if that would be impact or not. I put it like this. I listened to the Israeli ambassador on the television the other night arguing that the only way they can get at the terrorists that are Hamas is through the civilian population. These people don't wear uniforms and so on. I actually think it is genocide at this stage. There's no other way you can call it. What is it, 28,000, you know, ordinary citizens? Like, I can't remember butchery like it. I mean, if you even think about the way that they worked, that it was a situation where you had the people of Gaza were told to evacuate from the northern go part south, of Gaza, yeah. go south. They've gone south to try and escape and now the Israelis have chased them into Rafah and I think that's absolutely outrageous. Like they have not been able to discriminate between uh, a war with Hamas and uh, sort of collateral damage which is desperate for ordinary people. Yeah, anyway, okay, let's move on from that. And uh, something I want to talk to you about is whether the public wants the green agenda or not. And this was put into my mind by a couple of things that have happened recently. The ongoing row about Dublin Airport and the Mm -hmm. capacity for Dublin Airport, but also now the traffic management of Dublin City. So uh, it's going to become from later in the year even harder to get through Dublin City Centre if you want to go from north side to south side or south side to north side. And... Dublin City Council is not actually following a Green Party directive on this. This is something it's doing itself. And there seems to be widespread support amongst all the political parties for doing this. But it does strike me as interesting is is that how is this going to play for the potential for the Greens in the election? Are they going to be thanked? Are they going to be blamed for doing these things that they believe are essential? Well, first of all, uh, I think... 
the reality of the whole sustainability agenda is it doesn't matter if the Green Party's in government or not really because Europe is driving this change. Uh, the EU Green Deal in every aspect of finance, uh, commerce, buildings, uh, electric vehicles, electrifying heat, heating and transport is all going to be driven by Europe and it's going to be relentless and it won't stop at 2030. So I, I, that, that I think is the, the, the sort of real imperative about. As regards the politics of it, a couple of things. First of all, I used to live in Dunleary when I was full time in the media and they changed the roads there and it's only a one way system. And the other half of the road is taken up with a two way cycle system. And I understand they proposed the same for Strand Road in Sandy Mount and the, it's actually going to probably head to the courts uh, and so on. And, you know, when you actually look around uh, and you want to support public transport, you see very few cyclists using it. Like in my, my opinion, you know, you take a Dash or a Lewis, maybe has 300 people. A bus has 56 people. That is the most efficient use of public transport. Who's getting held up? Because there isn't bus lanes in a lot of these areas. Who's getting held up in the traffic? Only the buses. So I actually think there should be an absolute priority. So some of these proposals in the centre of Dublin have bus gates, which I welcome, but other parts of it really will completely close down uh, things. And the truth of it is, on a wet day, you know, your cyclists, it's not going to be 13%, you know, because simply, so they have the whole area around College but maybe, Green. But maybe you see if you have more cycle lanes and if you have more routes that at present, I mean, I would have known that I would have strongly discouraged my children to cycle to school, which I had done growing up in Cork all the time from about second class onwards. I would have cycled to school every day. But the traffic was a lot lighter when I was a young fella. Now with the amount it's of volume, dangerous. it's yeah. just too dangerous. Yeah. And I'm discouraged my kids and they had bikes and they did cycle for a while, but even they came to the conclusion that where we live, it's actually too dangerous. But if you have more cars taken off the road or more trucks taken off the road, then it becomes safer for the cyclists and more of them, if you build it, they will use it. Yeah. At the moment, even what we have probably isn't enough to encourage more people to cycle. I think when the Climate Act was passed in 2021, the original idea is we'd go for a million electric vehicles. I think there's now a divergence. The Green Party and others now are talking about road space allocation and they actually don't want electric cars well, exactly, as the solution. Where's the, where's the incentive to buy an electric car if you find that the places where you can bring it are restricted Absolutely. to Absolutely. So they're proposing to, to increase parking charges uh, by uh, times four and they're also, uh, I think, a congestion charge will come on the agenda. But the truth is, this is going to be driven by bureaucrats like Owen Keegan that was in the past. He's gone now. Exactly. But the point is, it's actually public officials will drive this agenda. The other thing in relation to the airport, and I have an idea I want to float yeah, at you. Okay. I, I haven't prepared you for this one, but okay. I, I will ask you to cast your mind back to the time when you were in Cabinet, because back then, and I was researching this again uh, over the last day or two, uh, there was an idea for a second airport for Dublin, right, in Baldonna. Tony Ryan very much pushed the idea that he wanted a cheap terminal at Baldonnell, which is the casement aerodrome, the, the Defence Forces. And it was turned on by Michael Lowry at the time, saying Dublin wasn't big enough to sustain two airports, despite the fact that many other countries had it. And it resurfaced on occasions again. In fact, going into the 2007 general election, Enda Kenny was proposing it, saying Dublin was growing and that this was needed 
uh, to deal to take a bit of the pressure off Dublin Airport. And again, it fell off the agenda because Fine Gael didn't get elected in 2007. So it got me thinking, well, if we have this problem that the, the problems in relation to Dublin Airport for the planning are not actually the amount of emissions by the aircraft, it's the road access and the capacity to bring it in. Maybe the time has come to resurrect the idea of a second airport at Baldonnell, which all private aircraft could use to keep them from using the runways at uh, Dublin Airport, and that you could then expand charter flights and various other flights. That the population of the country has increased so much. Now, I know the environmentalists will probably jump up and down and say, you're only encouraging further flights. And people will say, why can't people go to Cork or to Knock or to Shannon or to Kerry or to Waterford? The reality is people want to come into Dublin, particularly in the private aircraft, and here's a perfect opportunity. And for those who are, well, I know the people in the private aircraft wouldn't want the five-minute journey to the Lewis or to the Lewis line down in uh, the Red Cow, but others would if you had charter flights, for example. What well, do you well, think? I, I think that 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 boat has sailed. We what what, what, what do we spend on Terminal Two? Uh, two hundred million? I don't know. Oh no, no, it was nine hundred. Okay, nine hundred million. We we've just built a second runway in Dublin Airport for two hundred and fifty. About three hundred twenty. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, like, I, I I just think the idea of building a fresh terminal and a new runway in Baldonnell wouldn't make but sense given on, that level of ex- there's, investment there's talk, already. There's talk of a third terminal being needed in Dublin Airport. Oh, absolutely, and the point is, there's most especially we need a, an airport link. So I think to to kind of follow the money trail as it was, but I actually think there is no aviation policy in Ireland. We have... Oh, you're now trotting up Michael O'Leary's line, no, no, accusing Eamon Ryan of no, not having I'm an aviation policy. To, I'm actually going to trot out the line of a fellow called Joe Gill, who is a very smart fellow. And I have to be clear, he's a very close friend. Well, but I'll put it like this. I just see him, uh, I've seen him over the years in Good Bodies and so on. He wrote a recent article about we need a proper aviation policy. We have 30 aircraft leasing firms here. You know, Ryanair is the biggest airline in the world now, even though you decry it. Uh, going I, from I don't <laughs> decry it. I utterly refute I couldn't resist that, that I couldn't resist that. They have plans to go to 200 million passengers. And, you know, the truth of it is, yes, uh, raising the cap to 40 million will increase emissions by maybe 20%. I don't know. And there's no point denying that. But sorry, but that's in DAA's own planning that's application. Right, yeah. The Business Post read through it in detail and they found that but in he- there. But here's the thing. So the cap is, is starting to impact. Planning application was lodged with Fingal uh, County Council last December. It'll take them about a year plus to decide it. It'll take Borplanola 18 months to adjudicate on that. And then it'll take another 18 months in a judicial review. And the government, meanwhile, are sitting on their hands. Like, we're going to talk about planning in relation to water and energy. But here is another example how our planning system is not fit for purpose. And actually, you know, I know you decry Michael O'Leary, but he makes a valid point. I do point. not decry Michael O'Leary. <laughs> I reject I your allegations. You send me some of your articles. Have you read my book on him? I wrote a biography I know of that, him. I know that. Did he, did he, did he assist? No, he did not. That, that, I rest my case. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. So the, the, point, the point about it is this, that central government has to take responsibility for these issues. It should not be left up to Fingal County Council. But that means you'll have to change the laws. Absolutely. Absolutely. Emergency planning measures are what I'm looking for. Well, that brings us on so to the issues of water and electricity infrastructure because actually this is something I've been talking to Danny McCoy about, the chief executive of IBEC, in my other podcast, um, Magnified Podcast. And, you know, he's, this is one of the things, the major problems we have with the country's population expanding so quickly and with all of the multinationals in particular who have been coming in, 
we have major issues in relation to water and electricity infrastructure. Um, we have creaking pipes in Dublin and Cork losing 35-40% of what's been pumped out from the processing plants. We, we are constantly on the verge of having a water crisis and particularly when you have an awful lot of industry requires a large amount of water. Um, we have plans from Irish Water to divert from the River Shannon and again there's a campaign against it. They're involved in a process of trying to persuade people uh, about this and they still haven't got to planning even though the water is needed urgently and it's everybody's water in the country, not just those who live on the banks of the Shannon. And then you have electricity infrastructure. And I think I mentioned in a previous podcast, the late Eddie O'Connor, who had this incredibly brilliant idea in relation to an underwater grid offshore in relation to harvesting the offshore wind energy when the new uh, pylons go up. But he was also very critical of what AirGrid has done onshore. Simply put, an awful lot of the modern industries have big power requirements and that's the things that bring us about the AI and all the various other things that are going to be so important to our economic future and our well-being. And yet we are so far behind on the provision of this necessary infrastructure. And I think it goes back to the point that you've been making. We just don't plan for it. And then when we do plan for it, we can't get through the planning process. Yeah. And Cliff Taylor in the Irish Times wrote a recent article about this specific problem of electricity and water. And the more you look into it, the more farcical it is. Here are politicians fixated with the contemporary issues of bailing out RT and taking their eye off the absolutely essential situation that Dublin and the East uh, Midlands area will run out of water and sanitary services by six years' time. And the fact of the matter is that proposal to pipe water from the uh, Partine Payson in, in Tipperary has to be fast forwarded. Simply, there will not be houses able to be supplied with water and sanitary service. But just on the wind situation, I just, I just, just just bear with me on this. So, great success story. 34% of our national electricity is wind. The plan is to get that up to 80% by 2030. So, when you delve into the 31 county development plans, and, and sorry, you need about five times the area zoned as permissible because you mightn't get the landowners to agree. There could be ecology problems with the hen harrier bird or there could be other problems, right? So the fact of the matter is the attrition is about a fifth of zoned land can be built on. And, you know, you must be half a kilometre from a house as well. In all these areas, if you go into the development plans, there's a pipeline of nine gigawatts, right? And it's supposed to be 1.8 gigawatts here. No planning permission has been granted in the last year. And the four that were granted are now gone to judicial review. There's actually going to be no onshore wind farms, let alone built in a three-year period. And this is a crisis situation. And there is no joined up thinking between the Department of Planning and the Custom House and the Department of Energy that have put all these climate plans. The Climate Plan 24 in January sets this out in detail. And the, the county development ones, you go to Kerry, go to Mayo, go to Wexford, they actually say it's not permissible. And then you will not have a material contravention. Bold Planola then can't overrule that. And it is it is absolutely paralysed. Offshore wind won't come till 2035. Is anyone talking or even caring about this? And then when you talk about planning as well, we have a planning bill which is going through the Oireachtas at present. Belatedly, this is a big idea by Dara O'Brien, the housing minister, to tidy everything up. And the emphasis is on housing. And I see the lobby group for the property developers complaining this week, and I think with an awful lot of validity, that 
when you get a planning permission for a housing development or apartments, there's a five-year window between getting it and actually having everything built. And the problem is, is that if any of these things get caught up in judicial review, the clock doesn't stop. It keeps running. So I can think of one very good example, South Circular Road, uh, the Player Wills cigarette factory, long, long yeah. out of commission. An ideal site for development. It's a, and I've walked this area. Yeah. Um, you call that a brownfield site. Absolutely. Yeah. And you go on to Donor Avenue and there's a, this area needs an awful lot of regeneration. It also needs sporting pitches. That's another issue entirely. But it was caught in judicial review. It went to Europe. It finally won out, got it sorted out recently. Four years into the process. And you know what's happened in those four years? The cost per apartment, per house has actually doubled. You know, so uh, projects that were so viable may, the may day not, they applied mightn't be viable now. So they may not go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So this missed and lost opportunity. And although I wouldn't, you know, I thought as well, Owen O'Brien wrote a piece this week, I don't know if it was the Irish Times or the Business Post, and making very valid points, I think, about just how complicated this new planning bill is, how the government itself, having issued it, is now trying to make bundles of amendments. Now, they should make some amendments if they get things pointed out to them that are wrong. But everybody is flying in saying this is wrong, that is wrong. That is, it's, it's a mess. And, no, and, and, and it's going to take two years to put into place. The people I rely on, like if you want to get something done, go to the people who are at the coalface of this. So you take Cairn Homes and Lenvey would be the two biggest house builders. They would target two to three thousand houses a year. They say it'll actually not help matters and it'll add another layer of bureaucracy, which is so disappointing because this all started about the judicial review review process, the AG in 21 was asked by Michal Martin to review this on the basis that if you object to my development, it's actually a free hit. The developer takes on all the legal and other costs. And so therefore, the system is totally biased against them. And, and you know, and we're going to come on to Michael Gove, who I think is and really... And Jordan. Yeah, okay. Yes, indeed. No, I'm, I, But like, at the end of the day, is the body politic listening? This is an emergency that's building. And just because, you know, there isn't a quick fix solution, we're going to reap a bitter harvest. In the same way that we're, re- 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 you know, we talked about John Bruton, the corporation tax regime put place in the 90s. In, in the next two decades, we're going to have disastrous times in this country because the decisions necessary to facilitate this development were not taken. Okay, and let's talk about Michael Gove, who is the British Minister, I think, for levelling up is the expression. And housing. And housing. And housing. And he did a very big interview with the Times newspaper last weekend, and it was so relevant to what happens in Ireland. We sometimes think we're on our own in failing to deal with the social pressures, but he addressed the issue of the growing frustration of the British population who have been unable to get housing and affordable housing. And just like our population has expanded dramatically over the last decade or so, and the amount of new housing has not kept pace with that, they're also having major issues for people under the age of 35, under the age of 40, being able to get their own places to live in. And he's identifying it. No, you could say, well, hang on here a second, mate. The Tories have been in power since 2010 and here you are in 2024 saying this needs to be dealt with because there's democratic deficit is emerging. Uh, People are being turned off by a democracy because they feel they can't get a house. Well, you had 14 years, Govey boy, to actually look after that. But the points still are relevant. This is a major issue for a younger generation who feel that an older generation is taking all of the economic spoils and leaving them 
to have to do the heavy lifting. Yeah, I, 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 I got a copy of the Sunday Times UK version. Gove warns that democracy is in danger if young can't get houses. And I've been highlighting to you and on this podcast the age cohort 34 to 45 and how home ownership over two decades has dropped by a third. But he actually highlights the under 34s, right? And he says ownership there has collapsed. Now, yes. I know people settle down later, get married later and have children later than in our generation. But the fact of the matter is, he says, people are going to turn to an authoritarian response. They're going to turn against capitalism because the market isn't working for them. They're going to turn against democracy because it's not delivering for them. And I actually thought, fair play to you, because like beyond the minutia, he's actually having a default situation in areas where housing targets haven't been met. Cities the default position will be you have permission. There's a presumption of planning permission and to hell with the objectors. So the reality here is, and bear in mind they have no VAT on housing and you're only allowed a first party appeal in the British planning system. So the fact of the matter is this is really starting to impinge because, and you see, this comes back to the Mary Lou and the 300 grand houses. The fact of the matter is If you actually think about it, this is the big conflict between the haves and the have-nots. And the have-nots are trying to get on the housing ladder and they want prices to come down. And do you think, because you'd be looking at markets, do you think house prices are going to fall in Dublin? No, but I, mean, I think I, they might. Well, they won't fall by as much to bring them down to the cost of a new house in Dublin being three hundred thousand euro. I just nobody no. can see how that would actually. No, I agree be done. with that. But nobody, you look at say, say, say you're you're in your forties and worked hard. You're looking at semi-detached houses, say in a nice area, are over a million. Like, like you know, no, your first property might be. And sorry, just one last thing on Gove, which I was amused by as well, was that he started giving out about foreign investors buying houses. Now, funnily enough. London is full of the wealthier end of foreign investors who come in, which has made it an international city. But effectively, he was giving out what, what we would call and the vulture funds. And a two-tier funds. tax regime he was proposing, yeah. a higher rate of stamp duty for a foreigner buying it as opposed to... I thought that was quite populist, actually. Well, it is. I mean, Jesus, Gove has always been a populist. But when you talk about the €300,000 home in uh, Ireland... There was a couple of pieces in the Business Post last week which were very interesting. And this Killian Woods, the reporter who's a specialist in relation to housing, pointing out how Darrow O'Brien's gov- uh, policies have actually meant that with various subsidies and grants and allowances, yeah. that it is actually bringing down the net cost to many first time purchasers to €300,000. You know, in the yeah, no, 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 I just, uh, the Cree-Cone has scheme is, yeah. so if the unit cost of an apartment is 450 because there's a high spec on yeah. them, right, there's a subsidy to bring it down and it's called the Cree-Cone scheme and it's actually starting to take legs and it means that things that wouldn't otherwise be built because they're not viable, they're not marketable, they're not affordable, will come to the market. And then he has the major cost rental scheme uh, and Bob Jordan uh, Well, this is right. it. I mean, Bob Jordan, it was the lead story in the Business Post last Sunday, he's the head of the housing agency, which is the government agency. He comes from a background having previously been the chief executive of Threshold, the housing charity. He's a great guy. Yeah, and he also spent time as advisor to Simon Coveney when Simon Coveney was Minister for Housing before moving to this. And he said a number of things in the interview which I thought were really, really interesting, uh, such as that the value of properties has to fall, that this is in the common good and whatever people who are homeowners feel about the wealth that they have in their houses, well, that's going to have to be reduced a little bit. He also said that um, older people should downsize to make larger homes available for younger families. I totally agree with that. It was I ever think. thus. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's the way it should be. And mm. I, this is something that, 
here's my blatant plug time in my book Who yeah. Really Owns Ireland right. uh, but I did don't forget out. the last word as well and the back page of the Business Post and thank the you. centre page in the Daily Mail thank you very much thank you very much he for is that, the Ivan. best paid <laughs> communicator in the country carry on thank you very much for that Ivan anyway You've you've now pushed me back from the point I was sort of yes, no, sorry. Bob Jordan. But I think we actually were together on the Tonight Show when Dermot Bannon made a very very strong pitch that he was saying about like even where his mother lives that it's where he grew up. It's full of three and four bedroom houses looking out onto a lovely green estate, and that's where he grew up playing and all his friends and children played. And now the place is vacant and empty because all the kids have become adults and they've moved out. But you and have, there's an octogenarian rattling around. Yeah, in it. widows and yeah. widowers on their own. Mm. And okay, I have sympathy that the idea that people want to have their own homes, they've lived in much of their life, they want to have it there for when the families come back at Christmas and whatever, to have a room available. They're also used to their neighbours and they, the area in which they're in, the shops and the pubs. And I, I get all that entirely. But that then means is what we need to build is we need sort of apartments that suit older people that they can trade down and stay in the area that they're in, that they can take money off the table as and, well, and providing for their pension by selling the house. Know, but sometimes they need supports of, yeah. of health supports and so on. No, there's been a number of papers done on senior residency But But the, but the problem projects. is every time one of these is proposed, objections. Mm. And this is another thing that Bob Jordan focused on. And I get at the time blue in the face given out about this but the amount of selfishness I see from people objecting to necessary developments in their own areas it's always Led by the politicians often well there's politicians I, this is like Sean ex- Crow as you know 650 house scheme in, in Dublin South West has objected but can I just say one thing from the Bob Jordan interview that I really liked so I was trying to work out how can you do a 300 grand house for a first time home buyer? And the way you do it is actually the genesis is in what's called the first home scheme. In other words, you don't get a 100% mortgage. The state takes equity yes. in the home and you actually go for a mortgage of 65%. And as you get older and, and maybe get a pay increase and so on, then you can afford. And I think the first uh, home scheme is actually the basis of solving the first I remember, house buyer. I remember arguing for something similar to that back around the time of the economic crash in in an RT documentary that I made part of if a section of it for on Ireland's future and suggesting at the time when so many people were in negative equity that the state could take over part of their ownership of the house to help get them out mm-hmm. of that problem rather than having to sell their houses and become dependent on state finance. My God, there was absolute war about people. Well, no, but there's a bit of a history castigated for shared equity for schemes. I mean, like, but they make the, perfect sense. They do, they do. And, and, and I hope, like the whole idea of the housing agency is to get a bridge between the custom house where you've all the regulatory and financial allocations to the land development agency and so on. Okay, a couple of things before we finish up. And I do want to bring up Donald Trump. I know you don't share my interest in American politics, Francine, but I thought what Donald Trump said about NATO last week was actually quite scary. In fact, that he almost invited Putin to have a go at European countries and said he was welcome to do it. This is see what demagoguery. Putin said, Putin said this morning. What he said? He said, uh, who would you like to see elected next president, Biden or or Trump? He said, Biden is much more predictable, much more experienced. I prefer Biden. Easier to do business with. So that's stirring the shit, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's stirring it. Yeah, yeah. That that actually is stirring it as well. But this happens at the same time when Ireland is doing a new deal with NATO. We effectively piggyback off NATO. Yes, we get a free ride. We get a free ride. And this has been pointed out particularly by people in Britain, uh, maybe what they say more right-wing think tanks, but it doesn't mean they're actually wrong. Yeah. 
and and we have a we have a thing here. Oh well, we would never view join NATO. We would never leave our soldiers go to war. It's warmongers. Well, NATO is a defensive mechanism against Russia. In fact, I don't think they'd want many of our soldiers. We don't actually have a big enough armed forces to be able to contribute in any way. We don't have fighter jets mm-hmm. that could go out and do things. But we do have an enormous amount of international investment into Ireland and we have undersea cables coming mm-hmm. into Ireland which Off need to be protected. Coast, yeah. We are quasi-members of NATO and that means that if Donald Trump becomes elected and if he explodes NATO from within, that leaves us vulnerable as well. So, But let, if we just analyse Trump's central point, which is not new, that, that America spends something like 3.5% of GDP on defence spending. And they're saying that if you go through the 31 members of NATO, Spain, Italy, Belgium, they're nowhere near this 2% of GDP figure. And they're saying, you know, like just because World War One, you know, two, yeah. America, you know, got involved doesn't mean there's an obligation on America. And, you know, they have their own financial issues. So I actually think the security question is going to fall back on the EU yep. and, and defence spending has got to be increased. And it's also interesting to know... Sorry, defence spending should be increased. And I agree. I mean, actually, Trump may have a point in that there's a certain degree of freeloading by certain European states who are not contributing enough. But it's actually in the United States' strategic interest to protect the European Union from the advance of Russia, even for economic and capitalist reasons. But there's reasons not going to be Vietnam-style body bags going back to the US. That'll no. never happen again. But war, I think, is going to be conducted in different ways That's as right. well, and cyber attacks and all But no, but there's no doubt for Ireland, uh, we are pivotally placed geographically. Uh, so I was reading this thing. There's now, since 22 with NATO, that member states who are not members and would cost us 13 billion, you know, 2% of our GDP to join. So that's not going to happen anytime yeah. soon. But we, we actually have, and it's classified documentation. You can't actually get it on the public record that in terms of the marine underground uh, surveillance issues yeah. and other issues, we actually have a deal done with NATO uh, since 24. It's just starting in January of this year. It, it What's it called? It's, it's something like ITTP or something. And and I think it's very, very interesting. Does that interesting. make us quasi-members of NATO? Members in all but NATO. The usual Irish first cousins, solution to an cousins, Irish problem. Yeah, first cousins. But, I mean, we do have skin in the game. Big time. Okay, the last thing. You went on our old employer, Virgin Media. You went on the 6 o'clock show and you were talking about this podcast. But I'm, trying court, to, I'm trying to increase your income promoting uh, Path to Power. Go yeah, on, yeah. Go on. You went on <laughs> to talk about this podcast. Has anyone noticed that you talked about the podcast? Because what you managed to do is you managed to insult all the native Irish speakers in the country and those who are not native Irish speakers, but who have a deep love of the language. For those who are not familiar, who haven't seen how you're trending on social media or who didn't see you on the six o'clock show, what have you done now, Ivan? So what happened was I did a 10 minute interview about Path to Power politics in 2024, went to an ad break. And next on the thing, I didn't even know she was going to be there was Sheila Shoiga. And in fact, all the guests on the so it's like the Graham Norton where you sit side by side. We're talking about their respective podcasts. And Sheila Shoiga has two podcasts, one of which is Oskelga. And so it's just Talking about. And then Brian says to me, oh, you know, do contribution. So do you speak Irish? And I said, ni fuckel er, er gum. And then actually he said, would you not learn it? I said, I wouldn't be arsed to learn it. And I went on to say 
that actually there's a very serious issue behind all this. So it was it was actually a bit of banter and crack. And it, needless to say, all the Gail Gorey pied in. You know, they're quite hateful, some of them. Not, I, not I, all of them. No, no, not all of them. The point is this. I want to make, now that, now that you've actually riled me up, I want to make, I want to double down on it in a few ways. First of all, they say there's 102,000 people speak Irish every day. That figure is the population of the Gael Tucked. About two-thirds of them speak. I'm raising the question about 16,000. How many people exclusively speak in Irish? Because bilingual is the order of the day in the Gael Tucked and everywhere else. The fact of the matter is, now that we're going to get serious about this, the unique selling point of Ireland is that our first language is in fact English because after Brexit, we're the only English-speaking country in the world. So does it make people less American that they speak English? Because we have this uh, hang-up about colonisation, we see everything through the prism. The Australians speak English. 1.45 billion people speak English. And it's damn lucky that we speak English. And we should acknowledge the fact. And people who think that Ireland is oh, spoken in Ireland is, is delusional. Is your social media career to be going typical West Brit. He has no pride in his own and, 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 nationality. And if they can't play the ball, they, they'll play the man. And But the real area where the rubber hits the road here is if we're becoming one third of the population are now cosmopolitan, they're not native Irish and so on, isn't it time to say, okay, primary education, compulsory Irish, give them a basics. Why is it the case to get into university in this country? There is three compulsory subjects in the Leaving Cert, English, maths and Irish. And I'm saying that a future minister, especially in the context of Northern, is going to review that and it should be. And a lot of people's bad feeling about Irish is because it was compulsory and forced down their throat. Well, OK, there's a number of things there. And look, I'm going to preface by saying you you answered in Irish the question that you were asked on the... Because that's the only Irish I have. Well, it's a standard stock To be honest, I wouldn't have even been able to do that. The Irish that I used at the start... I was quite impressed. The, yeah, because I used ChatGPT to actually <laughs> translate the... And, cheating again. <laughs> well, I'm admitting to no, my cheating. Are you Gail Gore? Can no, you speak? No, I can't. No, no. And this is, um, you know, a matter of, I wouldn't say regret. But you would have learned it at school. Well, I, funnily enough, I learned at uh, primary school and when I went to secondary school, I discovered that I was way behind where everyone else in the school was. And then we had... Just in a, the 40s or so. <laughs> <laughs> 19, 1978 to 1983 were my leaving search years at the Northmont in Cork. And the Northmont has two parts or three parts, really. There was the Osgoelga part, everything done through Irish, which is now an absolutely thriving school. And, and can I the just, numbers I just want to interject on that point. Yeah. If someone wants to send their kid to Gaelskullna, if people want to do Irish dancing all day, I love the GAA myself. I don't have a problem with that. It's it's actually trying to ram it down uh, people's throat and saying you're less Irish unless you speak Irish. Yeah, okay. So let me just explain things. So there's the AG, there was the a normal academic true English school and then there was the technical part as well, metalwork and woodwork. The Northmont in those days was an absolutely enormous school. I We had a, I would say, very poor teacher in the first couple of years. My Irish fell behind. So it was the one subject that I did a pass level in my Leaving Cert and I don't know how I got through the, the oral Irish as I was so poor at it, but I got through. I got my B in pass Irish or whatever and stuff and that's it. And I could not conduct a conversation. And the thing that I found. I'm sorry, about did it, you have to do that to get into college? You yeah, went to UCC, yeah. was I went it? To UCC. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I think part of it down to my, my late father had left school at, I think, the age of 12. He had basically just started secondary school for about a month or two when his father took him out as the youngest of 11 children and put him in the family tradition into an apprenticeship as a confectioner. So my father had no Irish. My mother was from Belfast. 
she had never learned Irish growing up in Belfast. So in the house, there was no sort of tradition or knowledge of Irish. So I probably didn't get encouragement in that. With my own children, I have encouraged them. And I don't know whether we should say this, but your own daughter was yeah. who taught no, three I, of my I, children. Do, do, my wife and my daughter teach Irish. You did. So your your daughter, Kira, was my was for three of my children in primary school, was their teacher for a year. So they would have learned Irish off here for a year. Uh, they were sent every year to the Gwaeltucht. And they all got, all my girls got exceptionally good results in their Leaving Cert Irish and could conduct a conversation in Irish. And they mocked me about my absolute mm. lack of proficiency. And I'm delighted that they have it mm. if they want to use it at any stage. And I think you're right. If people want to go to Wales School, they should be encouraged. There's a very interesting debate taking place at the moment, though, as well, about exemptions from Irish in the Leaving Cert. And there was an Eructus committee recently recommended that there should be a clampdown on the awarding of exemptions. And that may be very unfair of people coming from other countries with a different background. But there are issues in how we teach it. You know, we teach Irish in the Leaving Cert as a literature subject. That doesn't make sense. But do you not think there's a fundamental dishonesty that English is our most proficient, foremost first language. And and like no matter how much you can historically and culturally say the situation, the reality is if you get on the dart, the only people not there are probably more people speak Slavic languages in this country than speak Irish. On a daily on basis. A daily basis. Well I put it this way, where I live at the moment, where I've been living for the last ten years in Rat Mines in Dublin, when I walk the dog in the morning, I hear people speaking all different types of languages as I pass them on the street. There's people from... Arabic, anything. Yeah, mainly Eastern European yeah, languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you do hear people speaking uh, Asian languages as well, Arabic. I would be hard-pressed to remember the last time I passed people who were speaking to each other in Irish. I, I have a couple of people in work who speak Irish, and they speak Irish on the floor in the office. I use the Lewis a lot, yeah. and I use the Dart, and I use the Irish Rail an awful lot. And, you know, it's supposed to be travel information. How many people can absorb Irish on that when they're explaining what the next station is? I mean, the truth of it is, well, I've I know, no it, it's the dishonesty. It's the dishonesty that people uh, live with this hypocrisy that we are all speaking Irish when we're not. Well, also, I mean, I don't think it's wrapped up in your Irish identity. You don't have to be a fluent Irish speaker to be Irish. And there was a terrific documentary. Not everyone Ar- agrees with that. Well, no, it was a terrific documentary on RTE last Monday night. This was good public service broadcasting and rather than anyone thinking we're always knocking our tea. But that's just me. The former Irish rugby international Andrew Trimble did a thing about his identity about being Ulster Scots and also being Irish and talking to people in the North about why they didn't feel Irish or how identity. And it did make me feel, I mean, you have to accommodate all different types of Irishness and identity but it doesn't get tied up in having to be proficient in the language. If people want to be proficient in the language, encourage them, support them, all the rest of it. But it doesn't have to be competitive. My, my last word on this is, mark my words, if and when a United Ireland comes on the table, compulsory Irish will be one of the first things that will have to be looked at. We better finish it there. We've covered an Is enormous else I can amount upset of today. Gorov Malgus, I actually, I actually fell for it. I thought, Jesus, he knows Irish as well. <laughs> <laughs> Chat GPT, you can fake anything. Oscarelga. <laughs> Until the next time, if you want to, please subscribe to Path to Power wherever it is you get your podcasts, and also please let your friends know that you might get an interesting listen over an hour or so each week with the two of us. Until the next time, thank you for joining us. Thank you.